The first thing I noticed was the grasshopper size. These grasshoppers had been harvested by hand somewhere in Mexico. The distinct difference in size indicates something unique and beautiful. They had been harvested by hand, minimally processed and brought here, transporting the flower of the soil, the land and the people from their origin all the way to Austin, Texas. We had some drinks. We took some pictures. We probably bothered the guest next to us with our lights. And we spent more than either of us really want to. But we knew it was well worth it to get some great photos. None of them turned out. These are words from Robert Nathan Allen, RNA, executive director of the Future of Food event series, co-founder and board member of NASIA, the North American Coalition for Insect Agriculture, and founder of Little Earths, an educational no-profit organization. How I ended in a Mexican restaurant in Austin with a guy I had only met for a few minutes the week before at an insect conference? Well, I am a documentary photographer and... For a while now, I'm putting together material about the potential role of insects in the solution of environmental and social issues. I'm doing it traveling, taking photographs and talking with experts. Sometimes they lose my luggage, some pictures don't turn out, and some experts have to leave before I get there. But things are going great. You are listening. And my photography project was nominated by Photo España and then selected for the Futures Photography Traveling Exhibition. So, as the day after we went back to that Mexican restaurant, maybe you will find some of these day-after pictures at Kappa Center in Budapest or at Photo Ireland in Dublin or at Photodoc in Utrecht. And remember, not to miss the big picture, listen to the introductory special episode of Get the Bug. I enjoy having a lot of irons in the fire. I'm notorious, especially amongst my close friends and colleagues, as uh, really enjoying getting things going and then uh, enjoying even more finding the right people to hand it off to. I have been uh, working in the nonprofit space for a little over a decade. I've been working in the entrepreneurial and startup space in almost as long. Uh, throughout that time, I have had the opportunity to be a farmer, I've had the opportunity to be a salesperson, a marketer, ambassador, and throughout all of that, it has been really fun to learn uh, from a lot of amazing people about insect agriculture and uh, constantly learning how to frame and reframe the idea of insect agriculture for the public so that they can approach it and experience it in ways that are uh, beneficial and uh, can allow them to be open to this idea. Personally, in a word, if I have to describe which is my job, I came to the conclusion that the word is author. Which could be yours? Um, the word I heard years ago from a, a, a close friend, and it really resonated and stuck with me, was ecosystem builder. 
Um, you know, I, I have a very um, broad and very shallow knowledge base. So I know a little bit about a lot of things. Um, if you want to talk about the prebiotic properties of, of cricket exoskeletons, I'm not the person to talk to, but she's a good friend. And I want to make sure you meet. If you want to talk about mechanizing you know, black soldier fly production in a shipping container, I want to connect you to the people who know really how to do that. Um, I take a lot of joy in uh, getting to meet people, learning about what they're doing, and recognizing how there are complements or efficiencies to be had when they're connected with other people who are either working in their industry or working in a completely different space. Well, this makes you the, the perfect person for uh, an overview on, on the sector in, in the U.S. today. Well, we are uh, quickly coming up on some exciting uh, regulatory clarity that will allow new products like dog foods to be made and marketed across state lines, which allows them to be sold online and, and nationwide. Um, we're seeing some continued exciting growth growth in the culinary space with more restaurants using insect ingredients and more restaurants um, really highlighting their tradition, the traditional cuisines and cultures that they're coming from. And then I think we're also seeing some very exciting interest and recognition from more uh, government sectors like USAID and USDA and FDA uh, recognizing the potential for insect-based materials, whether that's for food or for feed or for fibers or for fertilizer, fuels, what have you. Um, more recognition from the government space and, and academic space. And then consequently, as more regulatory clarity comes, it de-risks investment and we're seeing more strategic uh, investment in the infrastructure, building out commercial scale facilities to be able to produce insect products on the scale where they, they start to really realize uh, their economic viability. We're really quickly approaching a, a sort of a tipping point where the, uh, the broader agribusiness community, the broader livestock community, the broader sustainable food community uh, is, is really recognizing that insect agriculture is, it's not a silver bullet. It's a, you know, it's one of a variety of solutions, but it's one that connects to so many other solutions. It really uh, elevates and increases the efficiency of other operations. Yeah, as in, in this conversation, I would like to, to focus mainly on food. Let's talk about restaurants. So there are a, a few restaurants here in Austin, and Austin, I think, is a, is a fun example. There's a few restaurants here that um, feature insects intermittently on their, their uh, menus, sometimes as like a seasonal special, sometimes as a secret menu item that you can request. Um, but just recently, a few restaurants have opened um, that are really highlighting the, the traditional uh, cuisines of Oaxaca and Southern Mexico. Some restaurants focusing on Yucatan are, are going to be opening real soon. Uh, and so these chefs are, are really excited that there are, you know, compared to five years ago even, there are more companies that are um, collecting and importing insect ingredients from Oaxaca uh, and collecting them and packaging them and shipping them in a way that allows them to serve them to their guests uh, in a way that is much more... Uh, much closer to that, the, how it would taste if you were standing in a market stall in Oaxaca. 
And I think that's really incredible because it lets someone here in Austin who may have never been to Southern Mexico, it lets them step across the threshold of the restaurant and from the decor to the music to the people that are are presenting their meal and serving their meal and making their meal, there's a love of the culture and the traditions of Oaxaca that really shines through. And so those dishes can literally transport someone to a place that they've never been before. Yeah, I find very cool the idea that insects here could, could also, also be something like a cultural bridge. They say Texas is the new California, and especially in Austin in these days, I'm feeling it. Austin is certainly one of the places that is uh, most receptive to bringing new ingredients that may be strange and unusual to some diners, but challenging those diners to learn a little bit more about where their food comes. And I think that's, you know, that, that sort of intention is in line with many of the chefs here in town already of wanting to provide food to their guests that is uh, more wholesome, more healthful, uh, more sustainable, and uh, really has a story to it. Yeah, and let's stay on strange and unusual things to eat, like sushi. <laughs> it was like insects not so much time ago. Now to talk about the fact that salmon, I don't know if you know that, uh, that is one of the most popular sushi ingredients, was originally not even an option in Japan. So simply Norway was looking for a new market. Things evolve. Maybe in the next future we will find edible insects everywhere and, and there will be stories like this one. Looking at sushi as the story of a generational shift, I think it's very important. And, and at least here in the U.S., uh, sushi you know, in the 1960s was for all intents and purposes, would be considered dangerous and disgusting. And, you know, I, I talk about my grandmother's generation would never eat raw fish, no matter what. But by the late 80s, through some of these innovations, and, and I think it's really important to recognize the chefs uh, as, as those catalysts, right? There were chefs in California who realized that they could create something that didn't have raw fish that approximated and created that experience of eating sushi as a gateway point or as an entry point. Um, one of the other stories I like about sushi, there's a Canadian chef who was the first to really put the seaweed on the inside and the rice on the outside, hiding this weird seaweed ingredient that Americans weren't, you know, and Canadians and Americans weren't really used to. And so those sorts of tweaks, right, those, uh, those, those ways that the cuisine um, evolved as it, as it uh, grew and, and grew to new places, those things changed it over the course of, you know, 20 years. And even still in the, in, you know, the 80s and 90s, sushi was, um, by that time, it was not gross. It was seen as like exotic and desirable and, ooh, movie stars and Hollywood. Um, so for my parents' generation, it was something that was reserved for a special occasion. Um, you know, most small towns, you wouldn't be able to get it at all. And then, of course, my generation, it was something that was really more ubiquitous and, and easily accessible in any major metro market. Um, and now for, you know, the, the even younger generation, it's something that you can find anywhere, even in lots of places where you probably shouldn't find it, like a gas station on the corner, you know? So I think it's, and it's just become normalized. And I think with insects as a food, um, over 10 years, we've really seen that it is going to be in a lot of ways a generational shift. And, and stories like sushi can really point to how um, things like that, food, you know, changes take time. I think there's other other great stories, you know, from lobster and, and its shift to things like 
tomatoes and potatoes and how they were viewed as, as dangerous or poisonous to things more recent like kale and quinoa, where um, especially with the ability to connect with people all over the world in real time through the internet, you know, right? Things like kale that would have been a garnish on the salad bar or a, a little leaf on the plate that you didn't eat in a lot of American cuisine, you know, 20 years ago. Um, it really had this, this evolution of a healthful food, of a, you know, a nutritive food. And um, there was a, a point where you could find kale in just about everything. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's, there's plenty of other lettuces that taste better, but uh, it, it had this uh, uh, sort of moment, cultural moment. Um, and, and with quinoa, I think quinoa is an especially great example because it, it acts as a great cautionary tale as well that if we're not intentional about how we are um, incorporating things into our uh, food system, incorporating ingredients into our foods, uh, and if we're not intentional about how supply chains and agricultural systems and food webs are built out, then we can have unexpected negative consequences. And I think, you know, some of the, the, the anecdotal stories about quinoa being more difficult to purchase in the places where it was traditionally grown as a result of this boom in demand in, in the U.S., um, avocados have seen a similar kind of thing. Yeah. And so I think with insects, right, especially because as a you know, as a, a, a Western consumer, a cisgender white man in Austin, Texas, talking about eating bugs, um, recognizing that there are so many cultures around the world who preserved these traditions and making sure that we are acknowledging and uh, giving the proper due to those communities that kept those traditions alive instead of having it be uh, another thing where it becomes colonialized. If there is a, a sudden spike in demand for chocolatiness in the U.S., then there can be an over-harvesting of those grasshoppers in those areas. And so ensuring that there are resources to the traditional communities that are uh, harvesting these insects or learning how to domesticate those insects, I think is imperative, especially as you know the Western consumers that could be driving those spikes in demand. It's, it's, it's very interesting talking about food with, with a person with this perspective, with your perspective. And let's go, let's keep doing it, but let's do it saying something about little herds and future of food. So Little Herds, as an educational nonprofit, we um, started out on a very local scale. Uh, I was raising mealworms in my own house and in a bin system and uh, turning those into cookies and taking them to the farmer's market to see if people would try them and to to get feedback. We were going to uh, after-school programs and public libraries, 4-H groups, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, YMCAs, and, and everything in between um, to just educate the public. And over the years, you know, we've really grown the, the way that we're um, achieving that mission of educating the public to uh, putting a lot of uh, really curated content online that introduces people to the idea of insect agriculture through videos, through social media, through uh, you know all the different ways that we communicate. And in the last few years, for us, it's really um, it's been important to show how insect agriculture fits within a bigger future food system and interconnects with all these other industries that are out there. It's not in it, it's not inside of a bubble. It's not inside of a silo. It's part of a web. Uh, and so the, the more we understand cellular agriculture, the more we understand hydroponic agriculture, the more we understand 
you know, autonomous supply chains, the more we'll be able to better equip entrepreneurs and um, farmers and product makers who are who are turning insects into raw materials. So for us with Little Herds, um, you know, education at the core of everything we do means that anything that we are uh, putting together, anytime we're convening an event, anytime we are contributing to a publication, anytime we are providing the public with fact-based, science-based, <laughs> real information, uh, for us is a win. I can get your point. And, <laughs> and what about the future of food uh, event series? This event series, we originally planned it in 2020 uh, as the future food at South by Southwest. We had it ready to go, and uh, like three days before the event, we had to postpone the entire thing. And the next day, South by canceled, and that's how we started the COVID. That's how we started the COVID pandemic. Um, but we were able to reboot the the idea uh, virtually in 2021, and and the idea, you know, in line with with um, that goal of educating the public about insect agriculture alongside other future food innovations and solutions. Um, it was a great experience bringing together uh, a, people from a variety of backgrounds, farmers, chefs, entrepreneurs, academics, policymakers, regulators, celebrities, and having them sit down together and talk about all these different uh, problems that are different, but that we can all agree, you know, that we're facing together collectively. Um, so that uh, virtually in 2021 and then in 2022 and 2023, we were able to produce it as a uh, in-person and hybrid event. So we had um, hundreds of people in the room both years uh, in person uh, as well as live stream to millions of viewers. You can go back and watch Questlove or Moby or Dr. Temple Grandin or Arlen Hamilton or Andrew Zimmern. You can hear, uh, you know, people who are celebrities. You can hear people who are academics. Um, you can hear people who are investors and entrepreneurs and chefs and farmers talk about a variety of issues that are really important to them and that are really important to the food system. And we've been very strategic about sprinkling in bugs throughout that. You know, when we're talking about how are we going to feed our future pets? Well, bugs are part of that solution. When we're talking about alternative proteins, bugs are part of that discussion. Um, and so this is, it's, it's been a really exciting way for us to not only introduce the public in a much broader way than we ever could have with a sole focus on insects to the idea of, of eating insects and, and using insects as a livestock feed. But it has also allowed us to put those ideas in front of these celebrities, investors, executives at large corporations in a way that we never would have if we were just focused on insects. And so I think, you know, we see that as a way for us to continue to, uh, you know, on a, on a, um, evolving in an evolving way, take these conversations to um, other cultural nexuses, you know, events that bring in people from a variety of spaces and have a density of knowledge, a density of decision makers or creators, uh, and make sure those people are introduced to the idea in a way that is um, exciting and engaging and inviting and memorable uh, instead of sensationalized or othering. I have to say this sounds very cool, so I want to be there. We have to, to talk about it. And is there something you want to add in conclusion? I think my, my team members would, would, would definitely give me grief if, if I didn't say, go to the website, uh, you know, donate even if it's something small, 
we're a charitable nonprofit organization here in the U.S. and um, and we we get the vast majority of our funding through public donations. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think for, for Little Herds, for us, it's it is one of the things that we've really crystallized over the past few years is that when we're communicating to the public about insects and insect agriculture, it needs to be optimistic. So for us, the continuously trying to uh, ensure that conversations are, are really engaging across the board and leave people excited to learn more, leave people curious, you know, about how it fits in with their life and, um, Leaving them, leaving them wanting to actually go out and try something, and and then wanting to share it with someone else, wanting to share it with a friend or a family, is the most exciting thing for us. Very last question: What do you think if I take my camera and we go in some of those Mexican restaurants you were talking before? Awesome! Let's go. <laughs> So you listen to the conversation I had with RNA, Robert Nathan Allen, ecosystem builder, executive director of the Future of Food event series, co-founder and board member of NASIA, and founder of Little Herds. As he said, you can still watch on YouTube the Future of Food conversations and be part of the future. So making a donation through the website thefutureoffood.at. It's also important you share this episode with everyone you know who cares about environment, is curious about life science, and is open to new ways of thinking. I do believe insects could be the next game changer, and that's why I'm working on a photo book and doing this podcast. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Get the Bug. Get the Bug.